Huddled beneath the wing, men clung to the undercarriage, but horribly not for much longer. When the jet's landing gear disappeared, so did their grip on life. Some fell to earth. I have never, never felt it to this extent. Helpless, hopeless, disappointed, poor and miserable in my life. All over 20 years, achievement maybe just go in blinks of few days. Now I lost my hope and I think it will not be an easy path for Afghan women. Now I feel like I'm in a tunnel, not very dark, but I can't see any bright light either. They should not be scared. Their honor, their right to education, work, uh, we have commitment for that. Uh, so they should not have uh, worries because we want uh, to open a new chapter of peace, tolerance, peaceful coexistence, national unity. A future Afghan government that upholds the basic rights uh, of its people uh, and that doesn't harbor terrorists uh, is uh, a government we can work with and uh, and recognize. Uh, Taliban spokesman Sihal Shahim and the US Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. Ending that snapshot of Afghanistan one year ago, marked, if you recall, by much distressing footage of chaos. Well, this week marks the first anniversary of the Taliban's return to power, and the general view is that the worst fears have been realised, in particular the killing of the al-Qaeda leader Amin Zawahiri in a safe house in Kabul last month, offered another illuminating insight into the terrorist group's close links to the Taliban. So what available options are there for the international community to help Afghans, particularly girls and women, and to ensure that the terrorism threat doesn't grow once again? Annie Pfortzheimer is a former senior United States diplomat. She was chief of, partly chief of mission uh, from time to time in Kabul during 2017 to 2019, at the time one of the largest American embassies in the world, and she has been commenting publicly, like other former ambassadors, on what strategies for influence might exist because it's a little bit tricky. Annie, welcome to Saturday Extra. Thank you very much. That audio clip is quite distressing, particularly that young woman feeling so desperate. Um, Before we get into the analysis, I presume this is a rather difficult anniversary for you given your work and connections with Afghanistan? It is. Uh, And I think uh, exactly what you had said, the worst fears were realized. Many people like me uh, wanted to be wrong uh, about our assessment, but we didn't see any possibility that the Taliban would, um, you know, would change. And in fact, they feel encouraged to be even more draconian uh, than they were in the 1990s. Just before we again get into details, did you see at the time any chance of cooperating with moderates within that group? Because obviously this is a very important consideration for uh, the rest of the world now. Could you identify anybody or was that again something that you just thought eluded us all? I don't think that there is such a thing as a moderate within the group who has any kind of decision-making power. Uh, There may be those who have more moderate views, but they are kept from uh, the actual levers of decision-making, and um, they're actually used in a way just as a front for interaction with the United States and other uh, Western countries. Um, So, no, I don't think there was a missed opportunity to have spoken to a moderate along the way. (laughs) 
Um, the US and Australia evacuated thousands of Afghans, although there's constant uh, stories here about whether they really are being uh, dealt with the way they ought to be. What have you personally heard about people who've remained behind and who are, for instance, connected to our security forces or the previous administrations? What are they doing to survive? Well, unfortunately, there's some very uh, accurate, well-documented reports of reprisal killings against people who served in allied security forces, um, women who have protested, uh, you know, in the early days we saw those protests, many of those women have been um, detained and the allegation is that they were tortured. Um, and there are people who spend their lives now in hiding, uh, moving house to house, or in many cases, doing all that they can to get over the border to Pakistan or to Iran, where they run a very significant risk of being deported back to Afghanistan. And no, uh, no country, I think, is doing enough to take care of the people left behind. There are some reports that uh, some have even joined the Taliban's enemies, ISIS, to survive. Have you heard that? I, I have. I don't think it's you know well enough documented, but um, it for it it has a logic to it because if they're going to defend themselves, they have to join a group that has some kind of firepower, and the Taliban and ISIS are battling for supremacy. So I, I don't have actual details at all, but we I have heard those allegations. The assurances in relation to human rights, particularly that uh, girls would be allowed to go to school. Um, now, was there a period of waiting to see what would happen and of giving the Taliban a period of time to show the world how they'd govern? I think that's exactly what there was. Between August and then March of this year, um, the U.S. and other countries, uh, Norway, for example, held a conference uh, in Oslo in January. That was a period of engagement. Um, there was there are still many, many restrictions on things like assistance uh, or recognition, but there was a, an engagement, the idea of trying to find a roadmap. And in March, with the reversal of a previous commitment, to open girls' high schools, um, you've seen a real, you know, sort of a, a frozen version of that. There are still meetings, but there's no sense of momentum or a direction towards an agreement. Um, essentially, it's become very tactical and uh, based on, you know, areas of negotiation over over people who are left behind or over specific issues relating to humanitarian assistance. Now, I just want you to develop that. You mean, when you say tactical, so th th there is movement in place in places, in parts of it, are there, but not, not don't look for a, an overall movement? I think that's right. I mean, I think it's very issue-based, the conversations that are being had now. Um, I don't think that there's this idea of a grand plan of how the Taliban might move towards, uh, you know, the three things that let's say they want. One is recognition, political recognition. Uh, the second is removal of sanctions. And the third is uh, funding for anything other than humanitarian assistance. Um, 
There was a very interesting, very uh, big piece in the New York Times magazine by a man called Matthew Ad- Alkins mm. that was very interesting to read. I commend it to people, the Taliban's dangerous mm-hmm. collision course with the West. And he makes the point that um, it's a bit dif- that that whole issue with girls' education, which I think a lot of our listeners will be fascinated by, that right till the very last moment, it looked as though it was going to be okay, like till the opening of the school's date. And in fact, the people in Kabul, this is why I'm asking you about cracks within the Taliban, I suppose I'm searching for them, <laughs> whether or not they exist. People in, in, the, in the Kabul part of the Taliban thought it was all going to be okay. And then Kandahar, which is where the more sort of conservative people are, decided at the very last minute against it and said, no, these high schools may not open. Now, is that your understanding of things? Uh, Yes, that is my understanding. And I would draw from it a lesson of pessimism, which is that it doesn't really matter what uh, the people in Kabul say. Uh, what matters is what they decide. And as I mentioned before, the, the moderates, the people who know how to talk to the West or who genuinely hold those views, they are not given decision-making authority. Mm. Does that mean that women are now totally absent virtually from public view in Afghanistan? Is this what the consequence is? Yes, that is the consequence. Um, there are... Um, only really a few exceptions that women can work in the health sector, but women have lost their jobs with the government. Uh, Many of them obviously can't be teaching schools that aren't open. Uh, They are not allowed to go out by themselves. You know, widows and other women who might otherwise have to support a family are not able to, um, you know, to have businesses that they operate. Um, And, And women are being told all the time, obviously, about what they wear when Mm. they do leave the house. Um, And it's an erasure. It is intentional. And it's um, something that the Taliban, they clearly feel is so important that they can watch uh, over 90 percent of the country suffer food insecurity. But they spend pretty much all their time legislating how women dress and where they can go. Yes, the the big um, uh, word that came out, the document, the decree on hijab or Islamic veiling that came out after the ban on girls' high schools, that was in March the 23rd, stated that effectively um, the best hijab of all, the decree noted, was staying at home. Male guardians, not women, would be punished for violations. Uh, now, yeah. the question was raised in this very good piece whether that does have a in rural communities and conservative households, but that it it may be a little gentler in the cities, but you're sort of suggesting no. Um, I don't have personal information. I mean, I think a case-by-case basis in... Um in Afghanistan, there are, you know, there there are many people living in rural areas. There are also many in cities. Um, there are the biggest cities that we know about, and then there are smaller ones, uh, the provincial capitals. You know, I'm not really sure in the city environments whether there can be some kind of accommodation reached. But essentially, the rule is very strictly enforced. Um, there's no reason to think that the Taliban don't mean what they say. And they have been um, there have been documented issues where they there they were beating women for wearing the wrong kind of headscarf. Uh, someone who wanted to go to university, which oops, we've just suddenly lost her. What's happened there? 
Um, look, I just we've obviously just got we'll just try to find her again because I did yes. wonder. Are you there? You are there. Great. Look, I'm I just, in it. Just, just, just I'm, I'm right here. Okay, it's just that we're losing you a little tiny bit, but I do want to ask you what options or levers are available to the international community to try to influence this then. This then. Well, there's sort of the three areas that I think I mentioned. On the issue of uh, human rights, I think that's where all of our basket of diplomatic tools of recognition should be deployed. We should be telling the Taliban that adherence to human rights standards, the UN Universal Declaration, for example, that's what they need to do before we can consider political recognition or their seat at the United Nations. Uh, with respect to the sanctions, um, they are clearly out of compliance on counterterrorism. They are still hosting al-Qaeda and very senior leaders who are uh, encouraging others to carry out attacks on the West. So the sanctions should remain in place and the travel ban exemption, which was there so that they could travel for peace and stability discussions, uh, I think that is um, a, a mockery uh, that that exemption is still in place and it should be rescinded. And finally, if they want more money, they need to provide transparency about uh. how money is being spent and uh. you know what they would do with it. Thank you very much indeed. Pity to have such a chorus of pessimism, but I can understand your logic. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. Annie Fortzheimer, uh, a uh, former uh, senior American diplomat on the situation in Afghanistan. We'll be back after the news. It's eight o'clock. <laughs> 